I am Plant on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Harrison Mooney joins me now. Uh, his uh, book, uh, Invisible Boy, A Memoir of Self-Discovery, has just been published. It is a powerful, unforgettable book that recounts his upbringing as an adopted infant by a white evangelical family. This takes place in Abbotsford, British Columbia, where Harrison is uh, made to participate in his family's revivalist church. While at home, his racial identity is mocked and derided. He's gaslit and abused, and it seems for being black. As uh, he grows up, he contends with racism, overt and internalized, and begins uh, recognizing and understanding his story. He seeks his uh, birth parents, and while the outcome in meeting both his mother and father are different, he begins to understand what uh, was kept from him by his adopted family and begins to understand the meaning of his life. And while the book is serious, uh, talking about identity, racism, transracial adoption, uh, history, a religion, and paranoia, the book is inflected with Mr. Mooney's humor. It is a well-worth experience, necessary, urgent, as well as important. Harrison Mooney is a writer and journalist, he worked at the Vancouver Sun for nearly a decade as a reporter, editor, and columnist. His writing has also appeared in the National Post, The Guardian, Yahoo, and McLean's. At Harrison Mooney is his Twitter handle. This new book is uh, from Patrick Crean Editions, which is an imprint of uh, HarperCollins. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program, in person as it were, Harrison Mooney. Mr. Mooney, good morning. Hi, thanks for having me. You're the first person um, here in about two and a half years. It was just, I had to look it up because I forgot. John McComb was the last one here, so it's nice to talk to someone oh, in person wow. for, yeah, for once. Yeah, I'm, I'm honored to be your, your kind of formal return to the world, as it were. I, um, I found, you know, I, I've done a bunch of in-person events this week, and that comes up every time. People are just kind of marveling at being yeah. back in, in a public space and, um, yeah, it's really special. I I missed it these last couple of years. I, I find that I'm I'm kind of learning how to be a human again. Yeah, how to how to react to people coming up to you or or just talking or holding the glass of whatever as you're walking through a crowd. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's it, it feels like a, a hard reset. I think uh, yeah. we're all starting over as people, and that's always really exciting for me. I understand that you you uh, have a job at the uh, Vancouver Public Library as writer in residence. Yes, uh, yeah, that just started. Well, what does that entail? I mean, it, it, it affords you time to write, I assume, but you're also interacting with other writers. Yeah, um, so half of my time is spent working on on my own project. Um, I'm supposed to be writing a follow up to this memoir, but I haven't started it yet. Um, I've spent all of that time just promoting invisible boy and then the other half of the time there are consultations with emerging writers there are some lectures and some workshops that i'm giving um and some some talks that i'll be organizing with um, other writers who are, are talking about transracial adoption or displacement or um you know i'm i'm hoping to speak to elamine abdul mahmoud about uh, fantasy wrestling and, and how that uh, <laughs> how that actually had a, a huge impact on both of our development as writers and I think as young black men. Um, he doesn't know this conversation is coming, but uh, it is, and it's going to be very good. And I'll make sure that it's presented by the library so everybody everybody gets credit for this this really fun chat we're about to have. I brought that up with him the the, the, the wrestling. I, I I'm I'm forty, and so I grew up. Um, with wrestling sort of in my at a very young age and then I, I, I like to say I outgrew it. Yeah. Uh, and ended up watching primetime television dramas instead. Yeah, that's what <laughs> happened to me as well. <laughs> but um, I, I uh, it was so exciting reading that in his book about how that awakened 
the the desire to write for him mm-hmm. and and the, just the creative part of it and even even when i see him on the national say every thursday um and he's talking about something that's happened in politics um you can see the sort of influence of wrestling <laughs> and 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 you know the the the, the ideas that, that that i guess yields if you will um he can look at politics in in, in that sort of way yeah yeah, I think that uh, you know he and I will will have a, a great conversation just about how our experience in this really bizarre early internet bubble um, sharpened our writing and our presentation and even the kind of like crafting of public persona. Um, you know, the the magic of those fantasy wrestling leagues is you know you're not doing the wrestling, but all of the other stuff that goes into being a successful wrestler, which is you know, becoming somebody that people want to cheer for and figuring out how to, how to work the crowd and developing your catchphrases and, you know, just kind of being a fun character. Um, you know, that's all stuff that we both learned, um, you know, in this space, trying to, to win imaginary title belts with our, our made up wrestlers. Um, you know, I want to challenge him. I, I feel like he hasn't, uh, he hasn't flexed these muscles in a long time and neither have I, but you know, fantasy wrestling is just a big writing exercise. Um, I think that uh, you know people would pay good money to see me and Elamine go toe to toe in the fictional ring, as it were. I'd, I'd pay to see that at the library. <laughs> um, when you um, embark on the, on the process of writing Invisible Boy, I mean, it's 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 crass to say that this took X amount of years because you, it, it took thirty seven years or whatever, yeah. however your life, you know, however long your life is, to really live this book down, right? Mm-hmm. Um, at the beginning of the book, you have the, the author's note, and you talk about intent. Yeah. And you talk about the concerns that you have as to your writing. And, and um, I'm wondering, as you start a draft, say, of this book, do you worry about how, not just how, how you're depicted, because we'll talk about that in, in, in a sec, but how other people are depicted in, in the book? Yeah, absolutely I do. Um, you know, I was really worried about um, how people would receive this book, not just in terms of, you know, what they might say about, about my intention or about my, you know, my orientation towards my adoption, but also just how they might react to some of the other people in the book and what they said to me and what they did to me. Um, you know, because I don't, I don't actually want people to be to be angry at those people. I think for the most part... You know, uh, I mean, my parents, my adoptive parents, they, they just weren't equipped to raise me. They, they didn't have the knowledge. They didn't have the experience. And, you know, you can blame them for refusing to, to seek that knowledge. Um, but, you know, the fact is that they didn't have it. And so I, I worry about people reaching out to, to my family. Um, you know, there's a reason I didn't name my, my mother. I didn't mm-hmm. name my father in this. Um, you know, it's to give them some distance because... I don't, I don't want people coming up to them at the supermarket or, you know, calling them on the phone and saying, hey, you did a bad job. Um, I think that it's plenty embarrassing to have this book out here, um, you know, have it out in the public and have people reading about what my experience was like. Um, you know, from their perspective, I think that's, that's tough. But, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't want people to be mad um, at... You know, like the the university when they did something weird to me sure. or, yeah. um, you know, like the, the folks at church, like I... I I want to acknowledge that oftentimes these people were were speaking from, you know, their conviction and being well-meaning, and it was deeply hurtful to me, very traumatic. Um, You know, this is stuff I'm still working through, but, you know, you can separate 
their intent from my impact, you know, this is the story of, of my impact. And I, I don't necessarily need to, you know, to, to call the police on my parents for adopting me or, you know, when I say towards the end of the book, like this was a kidnapping, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not looking for prosecution for that. I'm just trying to be matter of fact, you know, my experience of my life has been that I was kidnapped and it took me a long time to realize that. Um, you know, I just want people to reflect on that. And it's necessary, isn't it, to tell one story? Mm-hmm. And, and I'm reading the book, and as I mentioned in the introduction, I found it urgent that, that it's, it's something that you needed to do at that time. Otherwise, you, you, you um, wouldn't grow up is the wrong word, but you wouldn't develop as a person. You wouldn't um, um, be a good father, even, a good mm-hmm. husband, you know, a good person in society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I, I needed to do uh, a lot of growth, and often that growth comes with being able to acknowledge, you know, what, what turns you into the person that you are today. And for so much of my childhood, I, I really tried not to acknowledge what was happening around me, you know, and just let it glide over me. And it just left me in, in kind of a stunted place. Um, you know, so it wasn't until like, really the last 10 years that I started to, to go back and look at these things and, you know, look at the circumstances of my life and start to tell people about them and get feedback and find out that this was not a normal life. You know, I, uh, I, I sat down with a, a therapist for the first time about a decade ago and just started talking about my experiences like they weren't that unique. And, you know, I mean, watching watching her eyes just kind of bug out of her head, like, are you, are yeah. you kidding me? Um, you know, it was it was one of the first times that I just reflected on how bizarre and, and how hurtful and, um, you know, how difficult it was. And, I mean, it wasn't even until that long ago that I, I was comfortable calling, you know, my upbringing an abuse of childhood. Yeah. Um, you know, that was new. So, um, you know, these things take a long time to wrap your head around, but I, I really think that you know, a part of becoming is being able to, to be honest about your history and, um, you know, able to to stand for your own experiences without necessarily needing them validated by somebody else. Yeah. You know, I was there. I'm the expert of my own life. Um, and, you know, for me, the act of, of writing this book was, was an act of, of cementing who I am as a person um, and kind of taking control of my own narrative. Yeah, and it's something that you have to do. And, and, and um so there was no reticence on your part to, to I mean, you're very frank in, in the book about the very personal things, um, not just involving other people, but especially about yourself. Um, it's something that we that um, one story belongs to them, and, and they just have to say it, don't they? Yeah, yeah, and I mean, there was there's still a lot of hesitation. You know, I, I still feel like, you know, I mean, even looking at the the book across the desk here, like I mean, it. it it makes me nervous. You know, I think about, you know, people who might disagree with my story or again, what my adoptive parents are going to think if, and when they ever, they ever read this book, you know, I, I, that stuff scares me. And, um, you know, I, I made myself very vulnerable to write this. Um, you know, there were times that I was, I was working in, in the basement at my house and like, it really felt like I was just sitting naked in the chair down there, you know, and, and somebody would come through and I would jump because I just, I felt so exposed um, and so anxious about what I was trying to convey, um, you know, and I just tried to be brave. I, I just kept pushing through and saying like, you know, eventually you're going to feel really confident with this. Um, you're going to feel really glad you did this. Um, you know, I, I really believe that there are just so many people who experienced something a lot like my life. And I, I want to hear from them and I want them to read what I've written and, and feel validated 
you know, as well. So I just tried to push through and, and kind of focus on the good I thought I was doing and, you know, the, the, the need to tell my own story that I was honoring. Um, and eventually I was done. Um, but, uh, yeah, I never stopped being afraid of what I was doing. What will I, um, doubtless shock readers, Harrison, I think will, will be the, the parts of the book where, where you talk about sort of the, the, uh, the, 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 just the outright racism that you mm. experienced at home, the gaslighting, the abuse, um, you're you're told things about sex, for example, that uh, are are not based in any fact at all, yeah, but, but ha- have just to do with the color of your skin, um, and, and referred derisively to, to your birth mother. Um, the food is bland on purpose. <laughs> yes, things like that. I mean, um, how how do you? I mean, are are you angry about that time? I mean, as a reader, I found myself angry. Yeah, I mean, there were certainly times while I was writing this book where I got really angry. You know, my emotions were just kind of all over the place. So sometimes I'd be really mad, and sometimes I'd be really sad, and sometimes I'd I'd just, you know, be gobsmacked at what I had realized in hindsight about, um, you know, my own life. But, uh, I mean, in the overall, I'm not angry. I I really, I just want to help people, and I I want people to, to understand what this looks like. Um, you know, have a, a, a deeper discourse about race and identity, um, you know, and, and I want to give people the, the language to talk about these things and the permission to talk about these things. Um, you know, there are so few stories um, of, of the adoptee experience here in Canada, and that's just so clearly to me because it's terrifying to tell the truth. Um, you know, most adoptees I talked to, it, like, it wasn't easy for them. And, you know, you, you meet very few who will say across the board, hey, this was a great experience for me. I don't have any regrets mm-hmm. or weird trauma I can't place, no sense of loss. I mean, there's there's a lot that we all feel, and it just feels like no one's really acknowledging it. And, uh, you know, I just I, I wanted to make sure that that happened. Yeah. Um, that was really the most important thing to me here. So, yeah, this really is a it's a labor of love. You know, it's, it's my attempt to help. Um, it's not my attempt to get anyone in trouble. Um, or blame anyone or send anyone after my yeah. family or the other people who said weird stuff to me. Um, it's, it's really just like, hey, this is what it's like to be the other. This yeah. is what it's like to, be, to feel owned instead of loved. And I really think these things are, are universal. You know, they're not just singular to my experience, however singular my experience actually is. Yeah, the, 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 that's the thing I was thinking about as I was finishing the book was that when we think of adoption from the perspective of, say, a parent or two parents seeking a child, um, that long struggle, whatever that involves, miscarriage or, or divorce or, or remarriage, that's finished for them. Well, it's mm-hmm. not finished for them, and it's, it's not finished for the kid either. The kid may have spent, uh, I was going to say orphanage, there are no more orphanages, but foster homes, yeah. um, or the ministry, if you will. Um, the, the, it's not finished for them because that's the whole life ahead of them. And, and that's the part that I think we, we tend to overlook or forget. Yeah, and, you know, they're given a narrative, right? Their their life is, uh, as they understand it growing up then, this kind of miraculous thing that happened to their parents. You know, they were a gift given to Found, their parents. Yeah. Found, you know, um, recovered. And then as you, you grow up and you begin to think about it, I mean, often it begins with just the, the resentment that comes from, from not really feeling seen or, or acknowledged. Um, you know, you also begin to feel owned. You begin to feel like you can't, you can't explore your own identity. You can't ask about your history. Um, you know, and as those things become taboo, they become the things that you absolutely must know about. 
So, you know, there's a, there's a whole process that goes on internally for adoptees. And, you know, this book is largely about my interiority, just the, the, the narrative uh, of my mind and, and the, like, you know, the, the journey from this, this place of, of, you know, really strong whiteness um, all the way to, to black consciousness. And, you know, that's something that I had to do on, on my own. It's something that I had to do in defiance of my family. And, um, you know, I think that there are uh, a lot of people who have gone through that and realized that at some point they really have to, to cast off the narrative that their adoptive parents have given them and, and write a counter-narrative, um, you know, in their own mind. And, you know, you don't even want it to be a counter-narrative. You want it to just be your narrative. But, I mean, as we grow up, you wind up having to respond to the narrative you've been given. And it's really difficult. Um, you know, I'm, I'm yeah, I, I just, I feel like so many of us um, are working to, to just kind of take a hold of our identity and take a hold of our sense of ourselves. And uh, uh, adoption is this really bizarre experience where you just, you kind of never feel like you are in control um, of yourself. The, um, the the first third of the book, or, or quarter, if you will, um, talks about religion, organized mm-hmm. religion, especially this church that, that your family belonged to, that that you bought into, if you will. Yeah. That that um, I mean, at one point you, you want to save people, you want to speak in tongues yourself, and and um, that has a big part, I think, in in sort of institutionalizing the bad stuff that happened, right? The, mm-hmm. You know, the racism, especially. Yeah. Um... You know, the, the church that I went to, I didn't realize that it was a very white supremacist church, um, you know, or that we were really rejecting, um, you know, progress and diversity and um, the social change that was that was kind of coming. Like, we were, we were hunkered down in, in these old traditional ways that were, you know, very anti-black and, um, you know, very colonialist. And... I didn't realize that what we were being taught from the Bible was this slanted version, um, you know, of the Christian theology that was mostly just about upholding white supremacy. Um, so I tried my absolute best to go along with this and to internalize it. And, you know, nobody ever really says out loud, like, hey, this is actually all just, you know, if we're talking about the subtext, it's racism. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, so I, I would detect that, but I didn't have a language for that. And, you know, I mean, these are these are the authority figures in my life. You know, my my parents, my youth pastor, the pastor. You know, the man of God himself, uh, anointed by God, and then he'll tell me, you know, well, like black people are are you know predisposed to sexual promiscuity, and and that's just a fact. You know, and he'll cite a Bible verse, and he'll say this Bible verse is uh, that's where that came from. And I, I mean, what are you supposed to do with that? You can't say. Like, oh, I'm sorry, Pastor Don, that's racist. (laughs) You know, I was 10. Um, So I I wound up just trying to be less sexually promiscuous. You know, like, what else can I do besides reject this, what I understand to be a a fact about what it means to be black, um, you know, and try to prove to all these folks, uh, I'm not like that. You know, I'm not like one of these other blacks that you're so worried about. I'm I'm one of the good ones. Um, And you wind up doing this performance that, I mean, it just makes you feel so yeah. icky, you know, yeah. because it's like, well, I am black and the things you're saying about me aren't true, but yeah, I feel like I'm responding more to your image of me than my own image of me. 
Um, you know, I've, 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 again, I've created a counter narrative, a, a counter self. Yeah. Um, and that's not the same thing as a, as a true self. And it, you know, it was really difficult. Um, and, and it took me a long time to realize that, yeah, like I just, I just been brainwashed into white supremacy, you know, and I've been made very racist against my own body. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, that took a toll on me physically as well. That's the insidious part is, is how much of, of this is all internalized. And there's an episode in the book where you're at camp. I believe it's church camp. Yeah. Camp and, and, um, for the first time you meet someone else who is black, mm-hmm. uh, courage. That's right. W- w- that, w- that was his name. And, um, you, you, you don't become friends with them, do you? You don't hang out with them at all. No. Yeah. You know, it's funny now if I'm out and I see like another black guy, yeah. it's like, Hey man, you know, it's you and I against the world in here. Like if anything goes down, I got your back. But I mean, at that time, I was just so used to performing for white people that, mm. um, you know, another black person showing up and, and you know, competing for the attention I was used to just kind of receiving by default, um, you know, but then also confusing my own sense of what I'm doing in this space because, you know, he knows that I'm competing for the attention. He's competing for that same attention. So suddenly you feel like, well, who am I living for, you know? Um so he, he, he really just kind of put me off guard in a way that I'd never been put off guard. But then, you know, I also felt like I was losing. Courage was, he was darker skinned than I was. Um, you know, he was born in Nigeria and uh, he had an accent. And just all of these, these kind of markers of, of otherness and blackness that I had a little, um, you know, I, I thought that I had them a lot growing up. I thought, like, I'm black for sure and there's no question about that. But then, you know, Courage said, well, I'm, I'm black. Like, you're not black. You know, he said uh, uh, the, the last night of camp, he, he got up and he gave this wonderful speech thanking everyone for, um, for welcoming him to camp. And, and he said, you know, I was nervous that uh, people wouldn't accept me because I'm a refugee from Nigeria um, and I'm the only black kid at camp. And, <laughs> you know, and I said, hey, uh, I'm also here. We've been fighting all week to be the only black kid at camp. You know, I'm here. And he, he kind of, you know, he was very bashful and sweet. And, you know, it's funny. I was talking to, to Daniel Wagner, uh, who was also at that camp and, uh, and was in, and in, uh, in Courage's cabin. And, you know, Daniel was like, I remember him saying this, but he, he was just so nice. He didn't mean it mean. It just, you know, it was just such a zinger, you know. So I said, hey. And he said, oh, I'm sorry. I meant the only real black person <laughs> at camp. And, you know, it just crushed me. I, I left that camp just so confused about who because I was. Because he got a bigger laugh. Oh, it was a way bigger <laughs> laugh. It was so funny. Like, and it was just, you know, like it was a, it was a, a, a public hanging. Like he just, he just got me, got me good. And, you know, I had been, I was the funny kid at camp that year. And so everyone was already primed to laugh at me. <laughs> and, um, yeah, Courage, he, he won the day. Um, but, yeah, I went home just confused about what it meant to be a black person, you know. And, well, how come I'm black until a real black person shows up and then I'm not? But, you know, then he leaves and I'm black again, Um you know, what is that? Who defines what blackness is? Um, and how do I have any confidence that I have it, um, you know, when other darker skinned people arrive? You know, it, it, it pit me against, um, you know, like a fe- my fellow people of color. Um, and it, uh, it, it made it uncomfortable for me 
to be in spaces other than all white spaces where I knew how to act and, and how to fit in. Um, even though those spaces made me really uncomfortable. Um, so it, uh, you know, obviously I don't blame courage. These were my own, you know, internal issues, but, uh, it was, it was a disappointing moment for me because I, I had to kind of run even further into the arms of whiteness, um, in order to escape this just disorienting, um, interaction with courage. The, the, there's a, a moment in the book where you talk about, uh, one of the, the first jobs you get, I guess. As as a kid, you you work at this place called the House of James. Yes, the Christian bookstore in Abbotsford. It's, yeah, uh, still open. You describe the sequence in the book where where um, you're working there, and, and and a white customer comes in. I think it's a white woman, um, and even though she's looking for something, she needs help. Mm-hmm. Uh, she ignores you. Um, I, I found that that part of the book, all the way up to the the end of that story in the book, um, illustrative. Because it's something that a lot of people who are racialized, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, can relate to or have experienced themselves. Yeah. Well, what? So, so she was looking for something, looking for a particular kind of music, or yeah. So she had come in looking for um, just the the name of a song, and you know, at that point, I was an expert in Christian music. You know, you could hum a couple of lines from any song, and I'd say like, oh, well, that's three crosses that's third day that's jars of clay you know i just knew but um you know she came in and she she hummed this song and i knew what it was but she she just didn't want my help and Mm. it was it was so frustrating because that happened a lot you know i'd have my name tag and i'd be over there like oh i know this one yeah and people would say no thank you and you know she said no thank you pretty forcefully and um i think she walked away and thought about kind of how how mean she'd been and so she came back, but her, her way of, of connecting with me after that was that she asked me about Christian rap. You know, she mm. was like, is there any good Christian rap music? Um, you know, my, my son likes rap, but uh, obviously, you know, we don't want him listening to anything too thuggish. <laughs> um, you know, so I, I took her through the rap section, and I mean, by then I knew enough to know that most of the time, you know, if somebody at the House of James asks for a rap, they want a white rapper. Um, you know, and we had, we had two white rappers. So I, uh, I showed her one of those albums and I mean, she didn't, she didn't want to, she didn't want to take it to the listening station. You know, she didn't ask me to, sometimes you have to like unwrap it and then play it. And then you have to go and shrink wrap it again. It's like a whole process, but there's nothing like that. She was just like, this looks great. I'll take it. And then a little bit later she came back like, oh, it turns out that, you know, all the albums are buy one, get one. Do you have anything else? And I said like, oh yeah, well, obviously you're going to want this one. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was the other white rapper. And sure enough, like, that's what she wanted. Um, and then as she left, she, I remember she just kind of, like, thanked me and then, like, slipped a $5 bill into my pocket. And it was weird. Like, no one really hugged me growing up. I'm not used to sudden touches. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it, uh, it put me really off guard. And I, I you know, in, in the book, I, I say, like, what made, what gave this woman permission to put her hand in your pocket. And I thought, like, well, yeah, you did. Um, you know, she told you through her every interaction today um, that she didn't respect you as a black person. She didn't respect blackness. Um, you know, she said it when she refused your help. She said it when you went through the, the rap albums and it was clear that she only wanted uh, an album by a white guy. And then she came back again and you had your suspicions confirmed. Um, you know, she told you exactly who she was. And you kind of just smiled and nodded and, and let her have a nice, 
customer service experience. Um, So, you know, that sort of thing happened a lot, um, you know, where I had the insight to know, like, oh, this person hates blackness, and they don't really want that pointed out to them, uh, and they don't want it pointed out by me at all. That would be very embarrassing for them. Um, So why don't I just help them through this this interaction, and they can go away feeling good about themselves. Um, And I did that all the time, and it it made me feel gross. Yeah, it's Uh, a lot of work, isn't it? It is. Um, you know, and you, like, you, you feel smarter than these folks because, you know, like, how did you not see this? Like, I can see sure. what's going on in your heart while we talk. You've told me so much about you. How can you not see me bending over backwards to still make this a, a comfortable moment for us both? Like, how can you not see what you're doing to me when I can see what you're doing to me. Yeah, and then I think um, she saw it, and then that's why she, she, she gave you the five bucks. Just a sweet five to, for my to troubles. Pay pay off her guilt or whatever, yeah. realizing what what she was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, and that happens a lot. You know, I think that, uh, yeah, people just, they, they don't want to engage with it, and then when they do see it about themselves, they want to be absolved as quickly yeah. as possible. They don't want to have to do any work. They don't want to have to look at themselves. They just want you to be like, oh, it's no problem. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, if you can do that, uh, it turns out that you'll have this kind of success that makes you feel like a really gross person. Um, you know, people will they'll open all kinds of doors for you yeah. um, if you're the, the kind of accommodating, racialized person who's not going to make trouble. Um, and, and, you know, that was something that I learned again and again uh, growing up in Abbotsford and, I mean, working just about any job. Um you know, I mean, in customer service, in retail. Yeah. I'm actually just going to back up and say in any job, <laughs> <laughs> you figure out ways to, to practice that again and again, or you, you're backed into a corner and you have to. You, you write in the book that white guilt is uh, is nonsense and, and that what, what it really is is shame. Mm-hmm. And um, it's an excuse, I guess, people can't empathize, and, and so they, they use it as an excuse for the, the history of stealing, if you will. Yeah. Um, that's something that I think a lot of us, a lot of us need to think about. Mm-hmm. I don't think a lot of us are there yet, if you will. Yeah, um, our culture certainly isn't. Yeah, we're not there when it comes to any of this. I mean, you know, shame is so paralyzing um, and and unhealthy. Um, you know, very self centered and like you're you're out in the world. Everybody's trying to grow. Everybody's trying to do their thing, and you know, you're here navel gazing and not helping. Like, oh, I'm sorry about that. Like, we'll help make it better like let's you know instead of just sitting here saying oh i disavow racism like dismantle these structures that we've built um but uh yeah you know we we talk so often instead about white privilege and white guilt and white fragility like i don't care how you feel man mm-hmm. like you got to fix this stuff um and you know we we've, we've set up a world where like white people have all this power to fix it and instead, they just respond to stories of how they need to fix it with the, you know, shame. Um, and then shame is this feeling that just leads to delusion. You just, you just want to think something else. And so you focus on, you know, the not true um, or a fantasy version of the world. And, you know, you avoid the realities that are often, uh, you know, the things that are your responsibility to solve. Um, you know, I, uh, my, my whole life was shame and it was a big part of why I just, I didn't engage with my own body. You know, um, when I talk about my, my, that horrible haircut I have, yeah. uh, uh, at the beginning of, of part three, 
Um, you know, it was years of just letting my hair go to hell and, you know, not taking care of it and ignoring the, like the burning sensation and the dryness and, you know, the, the, like the strands and knots that were falling out. Um, because I was embarrassed that I didn't know how to take care of my own body. But, you know, at some point, I mean, the only way forward was to cut that hair off and, and start taking care of my own body, you know, and that meant pushing through that shame to a point where I can act on it, you know, just acknowledging, well, this is what I've let happen to myself. I need to, I need to change that. Um, and I feel like, uh, yeah, you, a lot of people just let shame paralyze them and things just get worse and worse and worse. And what I'm hoping with this book is that people will read it and realize that we, we need to act collectively here. This whole system is broken. That, that haircut with Raj, was, was that the name yeah. of the barber? Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's such a powerful part of the book. It, 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 the pain one can feel that as they're reading you know, what you're going through. And I don't want to say anything more because I think people should read that. It'll, if I say anything more, it'll spoil it. Mm-hmm. Um, when you um, write about that, um, you write about the, the moment in, in Dr. Healy's class or you write about reading James Baldwin for the mm-hmm. first time. As I was telling you before we started, um, I found those moments in the book incredibly exciting. Because you'll never get back that first moment of reading something like James Baldwin no, for the no. first time. And and you narrate so beautifully how your mind changes, if you will, yeah. literally, mm-hmm. at that moment. I mean, it's exciting to read. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, I was I was really nervous about that part because it's... You know, in, in some ways, it's this climax of the book, and it's just me sitting in a dark library reading a book I'd never heard of, yeah. you know? Um, but, you know, I think that when, you, when you're telling a story of interiority, it really can just be about when you discovered the information that helped you to make sense of everything. And, I mean, for me, uh, you know, uh, Sarah Berman, who has the blurb on the back, she described the book as, um, you know, like a, something like a, like a boy who's searching for answers while his adoptive family is giving him all the wrong answers. Mm. Um, you know, because I had these big questions. I, I come away from that Camp Squia experience, like, you know, ready to ask my mom, like, Mom, what is blackness? But, you know, she's ranting about, uh, like, indigenous people and history and, the like, the rights of the, the First Nations to call themselves First Nations. And, you know, there's no room to to talk about, you know, the, the intricacies of race. Um, you know, we've made some, some pretty hard, hard calls in that house about, uh, (laughs) what, what race is good for. So we're not talking about it, but, um, you know, when I finally found, uh, James Baldwin's the fire next time and, and go tell it on the mountain, you know, I read these books and just, I mean, I saw myself and I saw, um, like down to, you know, he talks uh, in one point about, um, like every black man, um, at some point, you know, in kind of trying to escape this fate that seems to befall us all, will pick up a gimmick, um, you know, just something to set him apart from like all of the other black men that are clearly doomed. Just like looking around, it's like, well, we're doomed, but maybe I'm not doomed if I wear this silly hat, or you know, in my case, Hawaiian print from head to toe for a few years. You know, um, like we're just looking for ways to set us apart. And it was just such a specific example of, of something that I'd done that I, I still didn't really know why I'd done that. You know, and I realized we're going through the same things. You know, he talked about um, his experience of being in the church and, and feeling like, you know, I'm being taught 
just kind of a like a cover for reality. Like we're gonna we're gonna drape this over the the truth of the world and then focus on you know this sheet. Um, you know we're gonna focus on heaven and um, realizing that someone else was seeing that and and could articulate um, what I'd been through and what I needed to understand to move forward. Um, I mean, yeah, it was, it was just life changing. Um, you know, there have only been a few times in my life that I've read a book and just thought, oh my God, uh, it feels downright malicious that nobody told me about this book before now. Um, you know, in the book, I complain that like, I, I only found James Baldwin because I went back for graduate school. Mm. Like this wouldn't have even been part of my, my well-rounded curriculum. Yeah. Like the, the full blown answers for every question I had just in one book that's sitting in the library, but I've got to pay extra to find out about it. Like it was outrageous. Are, are you prepared for people to read this book in the same way? Uh, I mean, I hope they do. Um, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not prepared to be, um, to be considered in league with some of my heroes and the people that helped to, to wake me up. Um, you know, it feels like these, these kind of like pantheons of the greats, if I get into them, um, well, then I'm just going to not respect these pantheons. And I'll be like, well, <laughs> I'm in one, so can't be that great. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, truthfully, like that is what I want. I, I know that there are just so many kids like me who are still just kind of lost trying to, to make sense of their lives. And, you know, like, why do I feel owned instead of loved? Why do I feel um, like I uh, why do I feel uncomfortable in a room of people who look like me? but didn't have my upbringing, yeah. you know? Um, and I, I want them to read this book and, and realize what they've internalized, um, see what adoption actually is for the most part, um, you know, and see how the, the ideology of white supremacy and the way that that dovetails with Christianity, um, you know, that these two things um, are, are poisons that we've ingested um, in order to belong in these spaces in many cases. I, uh, you know, I want, I want, I mean, families all over North America to be disrupted because, you know, the, the, like the black kid, this white family is raising read this book and is like, okay guys, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I have a new language <laughs> for how we're describing my experience. Um, I'm ready for that. Another beautiful part of the book is, is when you talk about meeting your, your, um, your, your birth mother, mm -hmm. um, Trinica, is that her name? Uh, that's her made-up name in this book. I see. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's the name you give her in the book. Yeah. Um, you, you don't actually meet for the first time. You meet on the phone. Is that right? Yeah. Um, first, I called her. I was I was just so afraid to, yeah. to reach out to her. And, um, you know, the phone offers so much wonderful distance. Um, so first, it was a, a phone call. And, I mean, even then on the phone, it was just so clear. Yeah. You know, this person loves me. and. Um, I wasn't used to that. I wasn't talking to someone who just loved me so unconditionally and, and purely. So, um, you know, I found that conversation really, really difficult, um, you know, and heartwarming, but you know, I don't want to have big feelings. You know, I'm, I'm trying to keep everything pretty measured. Um, I put a lot of my big feelings away cause mostly they were hurt and sadness. And, you know, I mean, when you, when you have those swells of emotion, you can't control like which of the emotions you've bottled up decided yeah. to pour out. I mean, it was, I just, I felt out of control. And, and she had followed your writing before that even, mm -hmm. before you even met or reached out, right? Yeah, I, I posted a lot of stuff online. I mean, you know, I mean, it was because I, I was at home, I was homeschooled, there wasn't much else to do. But, uh, you know, for a while I had like a, a comedy blog 
uh, that my youth group shut down. They decided it was too crass. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, I, I had like a Christian music review website for a while. And then I had my own blog, Harrison Exists. And I, I would just kind of write about whatever. And nobody ever read this stuff. You know, I, I never heard from my adoptive mom, like, oh, hey, I read your most recent blog post. But uh, occasionally there would be just a mysterious comment on it from from some person watching my life from afar. And I tried not to engage with who I obviously thought that was. But, um, you know, I mean, I, I knew. Yeah. And uh, it was it was strange. It was just strange to, to be reminded every now and then, like, well, you actually do have this other mom that's proud of you. And you can't enjoy that necessarily because you, you know, feel bad. You, you for feel the, bad, yeah. and you know your adoptive mom would be really upset to learn that you were getting the love that she's withholding from you from another mom. But uh, you know, it was uh, it was special to to meet her and find out that she'd been following my life so closely, as closely as she could. Yeah, and and and, and as she could because there, there were impediments in the way put up by all kinds of other people, which which they could read about in the book. Um, th- that meeting, the, the first time you actually meet in person, was a coffee shop downtown. Yeah, yeah, being around the world. Yeah, and then um, there's a moment later where you end up at Buster's Towing, <laughs> and um, you say to her then that that if you were to write, you, you are going to write a book one day. Yeah, and this is where the book will end, and that's where the book ends. And that's the, where it ends. And it, it's such a beautiful moment because. Um, as you said a moment ago, th- th- there's love there, unconditional, undebatable. Mm-hmm. And uh, but then I read in the the interview you gave Jackie Wong and the Tai that after that moment there was some distance between you. Yeah, um, it was it was just scary, you know. Like I said, these feelings were so big, and um, you know, I, talking about it now, I mean, I I'm describing the feeling of of love at first sight, you know, yeah. like it was just. It was such a... Like it's overwhelming a, it sometimes, is. yeah. And it, it, it felt so different from anything else that I'd felt. And again, there's the, the feelings of betrayal for my adoptive mom. And there's, you know, my own feeling at that point that I don't need anyone. You know, that I'm not going to just go run into the arms of someone else. And someone who, you know, maybe in my most petulant moments, I would remind myself, who abandoned me, you know? Um, like, why would I let myself feel vulnerable in the presence of this person again now? Just because, what, she's my biological mother? Um, you know, that was the distance that I, I, I put between us. And, um, you know, being in her presence, I wanted to just throw all that distance away and, um, you know, like leap into her arms or just like hug her for a really long time or stare into her eyes for 30 years. And I, um, I didn't know what to do with those feelings other than avoid them. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we met that time and we made plans to get together for dinner and then, um, you know, we never confirmed those plans. And every now and then one of us would say, hey, we should get together for dinner. And then we wouldn't confirm those plans. And, you know, seven years went by. And um, I, uh, one day I, I, had, I had just decided, um, you know, I, I need to call her. Um, my, my partner's mom had just died. And, and my adoptive mom just wasn't there yeah. to support us at all. And, and I thought... You know, why am I waiting for her to come around and be what I need when um, I could be vulnerable and, and, and see, you know, what it feels like to, to be loved by my real mom? Um, so I was, uh, I was actually, uh, like, out in Burnaby, like, picking up a piece of furniture on Craigslist, and the, like, the desire to call her yeah. just kind of overwhelmed me. So I, I pulled over um, just on the side of the road, 
and I made that phone call and I was really afraid that she would be mad. Um, you know, my sense was that she'd, she'd pick up like, well, 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 (laughs) (laughs) if it isn't my son who doesn't want to have a relationship with me, um, you know, that's what I thought was going to happen because that was my experience of calling my adoptive mom. Um, but instead I called my mom and she was just so warm and welcoming and she cried again. And she told me, uh, you know, I'm so sorry that we haven't spoken for the last seven years. I was just afraid of how it felt. And, um, you know, I was afraid to be vulnerable and it was like, right. Cause we're the same and we're having the, like the, the same fears. And, um, every time that there was a kind of a gap in our communication, it was because we, we were just doing the exact same thing, just kind of hiding yeah. and refusing to acknowledge the feeling of it. Um, and so at that point, we both just decided, okay, you know, as, as uncomfortable as this is at times, um, because it's, it's just so big, it won't be that uncomfortable 35 years from now. You know, that's how long I got, uh, I, I had to be comfortable with my adoptive mom yeah. and, you know, it's not comfortable, but I am still comfortable in her presence because I, I know her uh, and I'm used to looking her in the eyes. And, and I, I, you know, I, I told Trinika, um, yeah, give us 35 years. Let's just push through this and uh, eventually we'll get to where to where this is amazing. And we'll be so glad that we did that. Um, and we were we were well on her on our way um, when she got her leukemia diagnosis um, and uh, and passed away this may um so you know it was really disappointing but i i'm also like just so glad that i i started that journey of of pushing through all of those big feelings um so that i could know her and you know now when i mourn her i mean i'm I'm mourning my mom that i knew Mm -hmm. um you know not just the 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 memory of someone i could have met or you know mourning the lost possibilities you know oh i wish i'd acted sooner um you know i i did i did it um, and I did it as quickly as I could, and I worked really hard to make it, um, you know, a, a real relationship. And, uh, yeah, you know, now I miss her like you miss your mom. Yeah. Um, and I'm really proud of that. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's someone, not just that you knew or that you know, she knew you. And mm-hmm. I think that, that for, for some people that means a lot more than, you know, the yeah. other relationship. Um, we... Um, it really is about timing, isn't it? And sometimes the, 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 that's the thing I keep reading in the book. That there, there's a lot of um, people put their stock in, into religion because they're, they're looking for meaning. But I, I think it really is timing at the end of the day. Yeah. Uh, the timing that it took you to find Baldwin, or or the time in the time that you grew up. Yeah. Um, just in the, in the beginning part of the internet. I mean, yeah. in terms of crafting one's online persona, that that's what you managed to do in, in, in your career, right? Yeah. And, you know, the other thing that, that early internet really helped um, helped with was just finding answers outside of my family. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, my parents, in the book, I talk about the school they wanted me to go to. And, you know, it was a, a Christian school down in Pensacola, and I'd heard nothing but good things about this school. And then I, I went and I toured it, and it just, it kind of felt a little bit like jail. You know, it, it gave me a bit of a, like a jail vibe. And so I went home and I Googled it. And, I mean, I would never have gotten that information otherwise. It turns out it was a jail, man. And, like, all the, the former students were like, this place sucks. Like, don't go here. It's a trick. Yeah. Um, you know, the barbed wire on the fence faces in to keep you in. Um, 
you know, and I, like, I, I'm just so glad that I was able to do that. And I know that, you know, if I was five years younger, then I am not, you know, or, or I guess five years older, yeah. um, I wouldn't have, have had access to that information. I would have just learned when I got there and realized it was a mistake. You know, um, I think that, uh, that's a big part of the timing that goes into this story happening now is that, you know, I like we're this generation that grew up able to Google the things our parents said yeah. and fact check and check them. Yeah. yeah. Um, how are you as a parent? I mean, carrying all these experiences that you have had. Oh, yeah. uh, uh, I mean, well, yeah, I mean, you probably have to wait for my son's memoir, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and if it is scathing, that is his right. Um, <laughs> I'll support him. But, uh, yeah, it's been it's been really interesting because uh, you know my my kids like my my reaction to the way that they act so often is like, well, I think you're supposed to shout and then threaten to spank or yeah. punish, um, but you know I remember that as just such menacing behavior and I remember being punished so often for for things I didn't do or things I couldn't help, um, you know, and I had a, a a really strong sense of who I was when I was younger. Um, just in terms of like, kind of just, you know, like I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to play my sports and I'm going to be good and I'm going to talk to everybody. And, you know, like I was very self-actualized. I think it's a big part of why I can remember all this stuff that's, that's happening then. You know, I, uh, my language came on quick and that's a big part of memory. And, you know, so I, I, like, I, I just kind of had a lot of experiences that I, like I saw and understood. Um, but, uh, I didn't realize the way that I had been treated until I had children of my own and started to reflect on that kind of treatment. It was like, well, yeah, I'm not going to punish my kids. I'm not going to spank my kids. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you know, I just want them to feel loved and I want them to feel like it's okay to be who they are. Um, you know, so, so far, I mean, being a, a dad has been exhausting, um, and, and really difficult, but it's also just been this, this really rewarding opportunity to, to, to change what I think of, 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 you know, parenting styles and, and change, uh, hopefully change, uh, the, the future relationship that my kid and I are going to have by being loving and supportive and, you know, not violent or, mm -hmm. or angry now, um, when they're just starting to figure out how to be as people. Um, and again, you'll have to wait for my son's book to find out if any of this worked out. Um, but, uh, my hope is that, uh, if he writes a book, it's just about what a cool dad I was, you know? Uh, <laughs> Daddy and me, colon, a memoir of a good father. Well, uh, before that, we'll, we'll await, uh, you said you, you alluded to uh, working on another book. I, mean, I can't wait. I, mean, I, 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 I told you this on Twitter um, even before um, I knew what the book was about. I was waiting for a book from you because... Uh, I read you in the Sun and was a big fan of you in the Sun and and I thought whatever book that's going to be it's going to be good. I didn't have an idea that it was going to be this good, but um, so you are working. Is it a follow up to this exactly? Or? Yeah, uh, I'm working on a book uh, right now. It's tentatively called The Same Thing Again, um, and it's um, just about those attempts to to build a real relationship with my biological mom. Um, so that's what I'm doing with my you know my time as the writer in residence at the library. But I also am, am trying to be just very honest with myself about how difficult this book was to write and how difficult this next one would be. Um, you know, I'm still grieving. I'm still mourning. Uh, I think that there's just a lot of growth and, um, you know, change that's going to happen for me before I think this next book is, is necessarily ready. Um, I mean, I'd love to write 
just uh, you know a memoir a year. Um, <laughs> I don't think anybody does. Yeah, exactly, well. right. And you know, this book took me a year to write this version of it, but it also, um, you know, it took me twenty years. Yeah. I, I started trying to write this story a long time ago, and I think it, it wouldn't be unrealistic to imagine that maybe it takes me twenty years to write the same thing again. Um, <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, is why it has that title right now. It's, everything is inside jokes for me, um, you know. So it's like, all right, pal, let's write our next book. What's it called? What about the exact <laughs> same thing again? Um, yeah, and, you know, in the meantime, I, I think we'll see what happens. Um, you know, this book is, is finally out of the way for me. Um, and it just, it was always going to be first. So, I mean, it's been out for a week, and I, I'm beginning to think about what to do with this creative freedom I suddenly feel. Um, but yeah, it, it's still in the early stages. Uh, I've, I've never been over this book before, you know, it's, yeah. it's just always been the only thing I felt like I had to do. And, uh, there are times now that I feel a little bit just unsure, like, well, do I even have another book in me? <laughs> you know, I don't know. Um, but I think that's just cause I'm exhausted after writing this one. I'll bet. Yeah. You mentioned Daniel Wagner. Uh, so he didn't die. No, and, so the boy who died is very much alive. And and you end you, the both of you ended up um, fa- uh, founding this blog, pass it to uh, pass it to Bulis. Bulis. People must ask you what that means. Oh yeah, um, uh, it's it was Daniel's term. I guess he was at uh, I don't tell the story right, but he was at a bar one night, and you know Jan Bulis. He he played for the Canucks for one year, I think two thousand and six oh seven something like that. And um, he was just having a good game, and it was a tie game, and everybody was shouting, pass it to Bulis, pass it to Bulis. And, you know, he wasn't, like, he wasn't a very good player, so it was, it was I think, really funny for everybody to want him to, to be the one who has the puck. Um, I don't think he even got out in the overtime because his coach didn't want him to be the one to have the puck. But uh, when we were talking about what to name our, our hockey blog, um, you know, he said, well, what about this phrase from this one night at the bar, pass it to Bulis. And, you know, I wanted to have a Canucks blog that didn't have the word Canucks in the title sure, at all. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was perfect for me. Yeah, and it, it's taken on a life of its own, hasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's still running it. Um, yeah, and he's, I mean, Pasadabulis has been going for well over a decade now. Yeah, I don't follow hockey, I don't, but but I see it all the time. And yeah. I always see the, um, how do you think the Canucks are going to do this year? Oh, uh, probably not well. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I always want them to win all the games, but they very rarely do. Um, you know, there's a new management group and, uh, they don't really have any leeway to make the team better. They just have to, uh, try to manage all of the bad moves that the last disastrous, uh, truly disastrous management group left them with. So, um, you know, maybe the Canucks surprise cause they've got some really good players, but, uh, more than likely they're like a bubble playoff team. And uh, the season ends as disappointingly as every other one <laughs> since uh, 2011. That story I know. <laughs> Even if I don't follow hockey, I know that one. Yeah. It's uh, been nice to meet you. Um, it, this is an extraordinary book. Uh, you should be very proud. Congratulations and, and continued good luck with it. I appreciate coming in to do this. Oh, thanks so much for having me. This was great. The, the book is called Invisible Boy, a memoir of self-discovery. It's from uh, Patrick Crean Editions, which is an imprint of HarperCollins. It's author Harrison Mooney. Join me in person here in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Flanta.